You are listening to the Enormo cast. Ladies and gentlemen, the stages of climbing shoe obsession. One opens wearing some smelly rentals or your bros cast offs, but who cares? Because all you can do is dig in your fingernails for dear life and wonder just how many pull-ups it's going to take to get to the top. Then you purchase your first pair, sold to you by a store clerk who's been climbing exactly two weeks longer than you have. Tighter, he keeps repeating, until tears blow your eyes. But then it's time to refine. And you watch and wonder why that skinny mangy dude climbs so much harder than you do. Must be the shoes. But then the girl who checks people in at the gym climbs a problem you're working on in a pair of flats while she's waiting for her date. Your conclusion? Shoes don't matter. But they do matter, so soon you're building a quiver. You got your edging shoes, you got your off with shoes, you got your crack shoes, thin crack shoes, steep climbing shoes, all day shoes. You've got three pairs of the same shoe, and you don't even know why. Which brings us to the final stage. You're down to a couple pairs of tried and true lovelies that will need to be pried from your cold, dead hands when you send that last great project in the sky. And here's the thing. Enormacast sponsor La Sportiva has shoes for every stage of your increasingly gnarly and unattractive climbing feet. So go to LaSportiva.com or your nearest climbing retailer to luxuriate and fine Italian craftsmanship and see the full line of men's and women's climbing shoes. Pointy, edgy, soft, stiff, Velcro, lace-up, slipper, comfy, painful, in a good way. And all of them built for performance. Because let's face it, the only truly happy feet are the ones standing on the ground after the sand. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, the big place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll say, really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a frayed end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes. And now, La Sportiva has joined the Enormo Nation as a premier sponsor. And of course, don't forget Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com, enter Enormo at checkout to get a discount on great coffee and to help out the Enormo cast. And now back to the show. Check, check. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Galoose. It is May, no, June 8th, not May anymore, June 8th, about 10.30 Mountain Standard Time. This is episode 82 of the Enormacast, a conversation with mountaineering legend Jack Tackle. Before we talk to Jack, the only real news I have is that the International Climbing Festival is coming up in Lander, Wyoming. We're getting the band back together, and by the band, I mean the guys I normally go up there with, Stephen Simon from episode 70, as well as Hayden Kennedy is coming along. He's presenting up there for the climbing festival, as well as a bunch of other visionary climbers. There's clinics, there's parties, and of course, there's the Lander Bar, which is the best climbing bar in the country. I will go to the mat for the Lander Bar, and in fact, I've nearly gone to the mat several times in the Lander Bar. But yeah, the best climbing bar in the country, one of the great little climbing towns in the country. Always a good time, and I want to invite everybody up there. I'm not doing anything official with the uh, the festival this year. I will probably be hunting some subjects for interviews, but we'll be rolling in the mobile studio. So if you see it parked out there, come by and say hello, have a drink, and you will receive a warm, hearty welcome in the mobile studio. So make sure and do that. See you up there. It is... Second weekend in July, the 8th through the 12th. So hopefully we'll see you up there. Otherwise, I'll just give you my normal spiel. You can support the Enormacast in several different ways. One of the ways is, of course, supporting our sponsors, Black Diamond, Bonfire Coffee, Maxim Ropes, and our newest, latest, greatest sponsor, La Sportiva. Let them know that you appreciate their support for the Enormacast. 
Also, you can go to enormacast.com and click on the Help Out tab where you can do all sorts of things, little things, big things, including ponying up some cash for the Enormacast if you feel so compelled, which a lot of folks have been lately, so I totally appreciate that. Someday I may be able to quit my day job, which is, of course, the ubiquitous dream of all climbers. All right, that's all for business. Now let's talk about Jack Tackle. Who is Jack Tackle? A lot of you guys probably don't know who Jack Tackle is, but Jack Tackle has been climbing in a style of alpinism that you hear a lot about in media today, the light and fast style, the alpine style. But basically him and his generation invented that. And the cool thing about Jack Tackle is that he climbs big giant mountains the same way you and I go multi-pitch climbing at our local crag. He goes, him and his partner, relatively unsupported. They get out of the plane, off the boat, out of the bus, whatever took them there, pack up their packs, and they head up the mountain, which is, of course, a style that is something to be admired and most of us see as an honorable and proper way to climb a mountain. The cool thing, too, about Jack Tackle is that the generations that have followed Jack, although he's still well into it, even in his third and fourth decade, to the generation that came after Jack, he really is a guru. Guys like Kelly Cordes, who've been on the show, Doug Shepard, all cite Jack as a real inspiration in terms of his persistence, his skill, and the style that he adheres to. So that's who's on the show today, Mr. Jack Tackle. And and this is not a guy, as we will find out, that loves to spray about himself. So I really appreciate the fact that he sat down. We recorded this one sitting outside his yurt in Castle Valley in Utah. And uh, the recording reflects that. There's a little wind in the mic. There's actually... Um, several bumblebees that buzz around, which if you have a nice pair of headphones are gonna, is going to cause you to kind of slap at the air behind your head. It did me, even though I was there when I first recorded it and I was sitting inside when I was editing it. I still was like waving my hand in the air at this imaginary bee. So enjoy that. Just imagine you're outside in Castle Valley on a lovely spring day because that's where we were. But first, a word from our sponsor. Is that dumb to say that? You kind of got to say that. Black Diamond is a proud sponsor of the EnormaCast. And this year, Black Diamond is presenting The Rock Project, a dynamic program of outreach, media, and activism to bring climbers of all abilities and origins together to protect climbing resources the world over. Climbing is our playground, basically. And we use it, and we should treat it like we treat our house. Pienso que es importante para para disfrutar de la naturaleza con otros escaladores. This is awesome. This is connecting to the community. This is connecting to nature. Um, I want to go back to that every time. This weekend at the Rock Project, there was a lot of things that I learned. Minimizing your impact, having that be part of the conversation around climbing, along with this is the route I want to do. This is the gear I need. Understanding that I have an impact, that one person has an impact. I think being a responsible user means being aware, being aware of people around you, being aware of your surroundings, being aware of your impact. I'm leaving no trace and I'm not bothering their surroundings. There are a lot of climbers out there that care, but they don't know how to get involved. And that's where the Rock Project comes in. So go to blackdiamondequipment.com or accessfund.org for more information. We're all in this together. Cool. 
So uh, I guess we'll go ahead and start. Okay. So I'm sitting with Jack Tackle in his um, amazing... Actually, we're going to have to take a picture of that yeah, it's before not, I go. Not a bad view. From we're there. sitting in Castle Valley outside of Moab, Utah, and we're staring at the, uh, the rectory, the priest, and Castleton off in the distance up here at Jack's Yurt. Thanks for having me up. Thanks for coming, man. I guess I wanted to start with uh, just kind of maybe positioning you in just kind of in climbing and, and where sort of you fit. I mean, based on what I kind of looked at, a great deal of respect out there. Uh, for what you've done, what you continue to do, your approach. Um, always referenced in terms of, you know, the guy who gets things done. Like, that seems to be your reputation, which... Eventually. I don't think, I don't think, it's, I don't think it's random. I mean, yeah. and, and we'll hopefully get into that. But just to kind of position some folks that... Um, we were just talking about how, at least in my purview, the, a, a lot of the, Alaska, the really hard Alaskan climbing kind of a lot of it seems to have been done a little bit off the radar and maybe a little overshadowed by the Himalayas. So positioning you, when did you about start climbing just in general? I started climbing outside of Bozeman, my home, in 1973. Okay. Yep. And um, what would you say was like your most kind of, I mean, if you took 10 years or 15 years or a decade or something, the most active time for you, like where would you fit in? Uh, well, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, okay. I guess. <laughs> yeah, so a good 30-year career. Yeah. I mean, you're still yeah. you're still climbing in Alaska. You're still... I am. Yeah. I'm, uh, you know, I had, I had these other things going on called work that uh, had something to do with, you know, how much time I had to go climbing, which was great. But I wasn't... I was never a professional climber. I was never a sponsored climber, actually, in the in today's sense of that definition. Um, and then I've had some health challenges, you know, like 15 years ago, that uh, changed things. But you know, for sure, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, up until uh, 2000. One, when I got this rare autoimmune disease, up until then, I was, you know, pretty consistent. Mm -hmm. um, but I've climbed, you know, some good stuff since then and recovered for the most part from some of those health challenges. And, I'm, you know, I'm not 19 anymore, so there's that. You know? <laughs> uh, but, you know, like two friends here in Castle Valley, Jay Smith and Katie Calhoun and I and Randy Jackson... From the Tetons, we just uh, are in the midst of planning a trip to the India Himalaya this mm -hmm. fall. So, you know, not done yet. Yeah. So who are some of the other contemporaries in terms of, like, uh, the guys that you climbed with even, you know, through the 70s, 80s, and 90s? Well, initially in Montana, I started off climbing, you know, with just Montana local guys, of which there were some very good climbers. Um, and uh, then in the 80s, uh, I didn't go to Alaska actually until the, f the first time until 1976. Um, but my first trip, I actually went with Fred Becky and two other guys from Bozeman. And then I went with a fellow named Ken Kearns, and we did a new route on Waddington in the late 70s. And then we went to Alaska. My first time to the Alaska Range proper was in 1979 to try to do this new route on Denali that we later called ISIS. And uh, we had we didn't have the best trip. My friend got hurt, which is a whole long story. But I did go back with a fellow from Montana, Dave Stutzman, in 1982 and climb that. And then Dave got killed six months later in an avalanche. And uh, so I started striking up uh, partnerships with people like Jim Danini, who I met through the outdoor business. And then we, he'd already, you know, done all this stuff in Patagonia and Latok and all that stuff. But in 1985, we went and did a new route in Mount Hunter together, and it was his first climbing trip to Alaska. He'd never been to the Alaska range mm -hmm. until then. 
So he and I did a bunch of routes in the range the rest of the 80s. Then I started uh, climbing with uh, people like Alex Lowe and in the 80s and mainly doing winter ascents in the Tetons. And then I started climbing with Jack Roberts a little bit in the mid-90s. We did some trips to Mount Kennedy and Mount Logan. So it's a sort of been a progression of yeah. people, you know, some of which obviously aren't here anymore. Right. And some of them are. And Jay Smith and I connected because of this place here in Castle Valley. Jay was like the Chamber of Commerce kind of guy trying to get me to buy land here. So I did that in the late 90s. And in 2009, just at the, you know, the end of the progression here, which is still, like I said, still ongoing, but Jay Smith and I did a bunch of routes in the Alaska Range in both Mount Huntington and Mount Thunder in 2009, um, which was one of my best trips ever to the Alaska Range. So it's been a progression over a series of decades since the 70s. So the Alaska Range, obviously, he, <clears throat> you mentioned that a few times, North America. You've, you've climbed probably around the world, but the Alaska Range is, you know, the thing that obviously captivated you over and over again. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the why of that place and of, of climbing up there versus sure. anywhere else? Well, you know, I, I was interested in going to the Himalaya and, you know, as many places around the world as I could, but I was always interested in doing new routes, first ascents, in good classic alpine style, you know, light, fast, new. So that was the focus of doing a big trip, you know, not my climbing overall, but actually it was a driving force in all my climbing. So that sort of made Alaska a very both easy choice from logistically, but also you got to remember that in the mid-70s, there weren't many people looking at the unclimbed faces and unclimbed routes in the Alaska Range. It was a pretty small crew of people. It was mm -hmm. you know, a handful of people. It was Muggs and me and Jack Roberts and you know, five or six other people, you know. And so it was mainly Americans. It wasn't really so much Europeans at that point as much as it became later. Although, you know, obviously Cassine made a statement there, but the it just seemed like there was this huge vestige of unclimbed, big, beautiful routes mm -hmm. that were very accessible. And for me, I, I was working in the outdoor business, so the downtime actually in May and June coincided with my work schedule. Okay. And I started guiding at Exum in 1982, so I tried to plug in these things spring and fall, and spring was the time to go to Alaska. Mm -hmm. you know, for, I'll tell you something that's like really fucked up. I'd been to Everest before I ever went to the valley. And it was because the time to go to the valley was in the spring, sort of, more than the fall. Mm -hmm. And I always went north. Right. And I got a chance to go to Everest in 83, but it was also in the spring. So it, uh, it just sort of happened that way. Right. You know? I mean, I went to Asia starting in 81. We went to China right after it opened up. As I mentioned, I went to the north side of the West Ridge of Everest, you know, in 83, you know, we went there to try to do the West Ridge direct without Sherpas and without oxygen. So, you know, I was always attracted to things that were more about style and something new than it was about just peak bagging. Right. And growing up in, you grew up totally in, in Montana. I grew born up in, in Bozeman. I wasn't okay. born in Montana. I moved there when I was one. Okay. Same but, so it's close so enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's probably some, some Bozemanite that says, no, that doesn't count. Yeah. But, um, but so, I mean, and that's just natural in, in, in 
that area in the 70s, I mean, you were a mountaineer first? and Well, here's how it went. <clears throat> the year I started climbing, Chenard, actually, the Chenard catalog, you know, the famous 73 Chenard catalog had come out about clean climbing, you know, Doug Robinson's piece, right? And so that was a, initially an influence on rock climbing because, you know, I didn't learn how to use pitons and a hammer initially. I started climbing with nuts and hexes. But for me, being in that part of Montana and having the influences of people like Pat Callis and Jim Kanzler, who were Bozeman guys also, having spent a lot of time in the outdoors all my life because my father worked for the Forest Service, it just seemed to me that the mountains were sort of what the deal was. Right. And I also was influenced by writing, reading. Um, some of the first books I read were by people like, you know, Bonatti and Dougal Haston and Bonington and, you know, a lot of the British alpine climbers who were doing things not just in the Alps but also in the Himalayas. And so I got focused on that alpine orientation, I think, because, mm -hmm. because of those combination of factors. And I just, it appealed to me from a creative standpoint, because I, I don't, you know, I played a little music when I was a younger person. I can't draw. I'm the only climber that I know that's never pounded nails. I can't do a lot of the stuff that people do that are creative. But looking at a blank canvas, if you will, of a, you know, huge unclimbed face and trying to figure that out, for me, that was the interesting creative process of doing big new alpine routes. So what was the culture, uh, the climbing culture like in Bozeman in the 70s? I mean, it's, yeah. it's not exactly like a Mecca, um, you know, super well-known at this point either. Not, but not, well, not then. Well, I would disagree about now, but nonetheless, at, at that point, Montana was under the radar. And to some degrees, it still is. Um, but there's a lot of good climbing there. And things like Highlight, as it relates to just ice climbing and the genesis of what took place in the mid-'70s with the development of new waterfall ice climbing tools and techniques, Highlight was right in the middle of it, mm -hmm. to be honest. So these people, like Callis and Kanzler and others, um, had f much broader reaches than Montana in their, their perspectives, um, mostly as it related to Canada and Alaska. But that influenced me. I, I think we had this thing we called the Dirty Socks Club, which you may have heard about, which was essentially in direct, finger-pointing deference to the American Alpine Club, which is ironic since I've been involved in that lately. But nonetheless, it was a irreverent thing, which was great. And part of the reason I don't think you've heard as much about Montana climbing was we had this early adopted philosophy that we weren't going to publish anything, ever. Right. Right. And we didn't for decades. So I learned to climb in the Beartooth, for example, where I did probably 60 first ascents, mm -hmm. you know, and they weren't like just one pitch routes, you know, they were ice routes, alpine faces, you know, north faces in the winter, grade six walls, none of us ever published anything. So I think that's part of what's fed this, you know, under the radar thing about Montana climbing. Right. right. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, so, I think... Like you just said, uh, well, let me start that over. Um, and how, how much younger were you than some of these other guys? Well, Pat is, he just turned 77 last week. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that was like a generational difference. Kanzler was just a couple years older than I, but he was a much more experienced climber when I started. Sure. Um, so the rest of us that were more contemporaries, we're all about the same age and about the same experience. Uh -huh. um, and then, you know, we got connected with people outside of Montana, right. like I said earlier. So 
the combination of this sort of concentrated pool of people in that south central part of Montana then had a far reaching you know connection for example Pat Callis and Kanzler were good friends and connected with Jeff Lowe and Mike Weiss and they always went to the Canadian Rockies and tried the Emperor Face you know mm-hmm. Pat and Jim had the high point in the Emperor Face until Muggs and Jim Logan did it so right. <clears throat> it wasn't just Montana right right so let's talk a little bit about some of these ascents. Um, I kind of, you know, we could, you've got this, I mean, we're talking about a 40-year career at this point. And uh, so yeah. we don't have time for everything. Right. Um, and I sometimes try to run that down in these, and it, and it just doesn't work. No, know? well, it I'm just, not. Just like Peter's yeah. out in the middle of it. Right. So um, I, I was actually uh, prompted by the co-host of this particular podcast, is Kelly Cordes, a mutual friend of ours. Uh-huh. Um, because he, you know, gave me some talking points, as it were. He wanted to hear a story, and he, and he had some vague idea. Maybe, maybe he made this all up. I don't know where it comes from, but something about um, rolling down the street in a car with no floor. Yeah. Well, that that is not a that is not an untrue story. Okay. <laughs> and it actually doesn't. It's not a climbing story. But let's start no. there. No. No. Right. Well, <clears throat> what that story is about references was this fellow I mentioned earlier, uh, Ken Kearns was his name, that I went and did this new route in Waddington with in 77, and then he and I went to ISIS, and he broke his femur, and had, we had this epic, and Muggs and Jim Logan actually helped me rescue him. In between 77 and 79, we climbed together almost exclusively, and so in 78, he came to Bozeman, and we went over to the Beartooth, and we did the first ascent of this thing called Cathedral Point, one of the things we never talked about, um, which is this beautiful granite wall in the still water. And we actually did five routes, just one after another every day for a week. So we were pretty psyched when we came out. We got in the car. I had a piece of shit, like 71 Ford station wagon or something. I don't even remember what it was. And then we bought a 12-pack of Lucky Lager at the first bar and started driving back to Bozeman. And uh, there's a little town called Columbus where you hit the freeway. And by the time we got to Columbus, 12-pack was gone. And we were just throwing the beer cans in the floor of the car. And uh, the car had plastic placemats, or not floor mats, excuse me, to cover the holes in the, in the floor because it was rusted out. Right? So I come up to this stop sign and uh, in Columbus, and I slam on the brakes, and the f- floor mats sort of move, and as I come to this four-way stop, all of the beer cans exit the floorboards, <laughs> and they go rolling out on the pavement, on the street, into the intersection, right? <laughs> and on my left is a sheriff, and he watches these beer cans, you know, roll, roll up from underneath your car, right? Lights go on, comes over, you know, and first thing he asks me is, you know, you boys been drinking? <laughs> <laughs> so we, you know, couldn't lie about that one. And, uh, Next thing he asked me was, do you have, uh, you know, show me your driver's license, registration, right? In those days, you actually didn't have to have insurance. Well, you know, I'd moved back. I'd been in college in Oregon up until 1975 and came back, and I just sort of forgot to get a driver's license. And I also just sort of forgot to get the car registered, so I couldn't really comply with those two requests. So he looks at me, and he goes, so let me get this right. You don't have any driver's license, you don't have a registration. You've obviously been drinking. He goes, if I do to you what I should do, you're going to have an even shittier day than I'm having. And nobody should have a worse day than me. So I'm thinking to myself, 
do I ask him, you know, why he's having such a bad day, or do I just keep my mouth shut? And so I didn't say anything, and he goes, all right, here's what you got to do. He points to my friend Kenny, he goes, can you drive? Do you have a driver's license? <laughs> yes. So he goes, all right, you drive. When you get back to Bozen Jack, you register the car, you, you know, get a driver's license, and if I ever see you in this county again without him, you're going to jail. And he let me go. Which, you didn't make you clean up the beer cans? We, I think we probably did. I can't even remember <laughs> right now because I was so shell-shocked. <laughs> so uh, we must have, you know. But we did get in the car and just drive away, right? There's an there's a epilogue to that story, but it's a longer story. I actually wrote a chapter of my book about this actual story. Well, so, I, I, I mean, so. Kelly mentioned it. He'd actually yeah. told me sort of a, a vague skeleton of that story. Yeah. Um, yeah through you before, but, you know, I kind of wanted to connect it about that. Again, this, like, Bozeman culture, this Montana culture, because, you know, it, it, it's got that storied right. mythology with it as well. Sure, like the, but it, it did happen. Yeah. It did happen. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, can I ask you a little bit about this ISIS story as well? You've mm -hmm. mentioned it twice now, um, mm -hmm. and obviously it figures big into, into everything. We've already heard about it twice, so can we get the details of that? Well, uh, one of the people you were asking me about, people that influenced me, well, mm -hmm. Brad Washburn was a huge influence on me um, because of his photography, because of his maps, but also because of his generosity. Because um, I, I actually, you know, I was part of this book uh, that the BAMP Center did called Voices from the Summit. Peter was in it mm -hmm. also. And we wrote essays in this thing, and we wrote sort of different topics were assigned to us, and mine was um, heroes or mentors. So what I mainly wrote about in my essay, because I was like, I just thought I was like some nobody, because I was in the same group as Royal Robbins and Tom Hornbine, but we all three were supposed to write about mentors. Well, I wrote about mainly about Brad and Alex to some degree, but mainly about Brad. So Brad is got, who got me connected to understanding what was still left to be climbed up there because he was the guy, right? He had 9,000 plates, 9,000 images of every aspect of every inch of the ranch, you know? And he was nice enough to share those with me, as he did with many other people. So ISIS became the initial project I went there to do in the range proper because it's an 8,000-foot face that's on the southeast flank of the south buttress. So it comes out of the Ruth, the west fork of the Ruth, opposite, near the north face of Huntington, and goes from 8 to 16, and, you know, hadn't even been attempted and just looked like, cool thing to do. So I went there in 1979 with this friend Ken Kearns. We got a couple thousand feet up it. Kenny was leading and uh, was he'd put a screw, an old Chenard screw, 30 feet out from me in the belay and then ran the rope out the rest of the way. He was in the process of putting a pin in and the snow underneath his feet collapsed and he just lost his balance fell over backwards and he took a 250 footer which I caught on a hip belay and the only thing that held was the one Chenard screw between us. My anchor failed and the one screw held. So he broke his femur and had a really bad head wound and now he's you know, 120 feet below me, and he cut himself off the ropes, dropped into this crevasse, shrunned really, but it was a slot with a broken femur, so I could, you know, get free and wrap down to him, and we went through this long, long process of figuring out what I could do to move him, and I got him, after hours of down climbing with him, sitting on my forearms as I faced in, <laughs> 
I got him to the snow cave that we'd spent the night in. Got him secure, left him there, down climbed a couple thousand feet, skied out the west fork of the Ruth, which was not trivial because we'd skied up it roped. Sure, yeah. And, you know, there's tons of slots. I get out in the amphitheater, Cliff Hudson flies over. I have a CB radio, <laughs> which I was able to talk to Cliff. He lands, picks me up, we go out to Talkeetna. For people now that go to Talkeetna, there was nothing there in terms of a park service presence like there is now. There was no ranger station, there was no helicopter, there was no rescue rangers, there were nothing. So I had to talk to the park up in the headquarters on the phone, but I'm in the midst of just trying to figure out how to get back in there and take care of Kenny and mug stomp. Jim Logan stuck their head around the corner of the flight service office and at TAT and said, would it help? So the three of us go back in, shuttle back in um, with Cliff's fixed wing to the mountain house, and then Jim Akinek, who later owned K2 Aviation, ferried us up to the base of the face in his helicopter, and we climbed back up to Kenny with a litter and 600 feet of static line and a bunch of pickets, and we put him in the sled, and Muggs ran the anchors, and Jim and I ran the litter, and we lowered him 600 feet at a time back down to the glacier, and Akinek picked him up in the helicopter and flew both of us to Anchorage. So that was my first trip to the Alaska Range. The very first trip? First trip to the Alaska Range proper. And how long was it between uh, the accident and, and, and the, the final stages of the rescue? Like, how long was he up there? That's a good question, because it's a fairly significant point. He was only alone for 30 hours. All that in 30 hours. Yeah. Out, find people, fly back in, yeah. climb back up. And out. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Especially then. I mean, then right. these resources aren't there. Right, well, it was because of all these other people, like Cliff and Akinek mm -hmm. and Muggs and Jim, and, and then just timing. But, yeah, no, we, he was only in the cave by himself for 30 hours. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he, he ended up, he almost compounded his femur. So he ended up, you know, in those days, orthopedic surgery being what it was, he basically didn't climb again. But... Um, but he's fine. Right. And, you know, so I, it started a legacy of me having to go back to Roots more than once. Oh, <laughs> put yeah. It, put it that way. <laughs> and you did go back to that route. You I went the back the show. next year with Kanzler, and we didn't get anywhere because of the weather. And then I went back in 82 and did it with Stutzman because um, in 81 I went to China with Schmitz and Kanzler and Denis. Mm -hmm. So. Do these routes like uh, does something like that get repeated, or is it about bagging it once and then, and then? Uh, I mean, well, it's been it's been thirty some years. Well, yeah, it'd be it'll be thirty three years this next month. Mm -hmm. um, well, it didn't see a second ascent for twenty four years. Okay. Yeah, and it's been climbed I think three times subsequently uh -huh. besides our trip. Um, four French climbers did the second ascent. Um, Mark Westman did the third ascent, and then Jumbo, the one of the, the Grigri boys, did, okay. did the fourth. I don't think it's been climbed since Jumbo climbed. It's not hard. It's just big. Right. And plus, this was 1979. You know, the first time we went there, and now you know things are totally different. I mean, people just take a fanny pack and do it in a day. You know? Sure. But it's, it was a little different, you know, because, and, and it's the nature of first ascents versus second ascents in general, you know, the first ascent is an unknown, the second ascent's a totally known sure. entity, you know. But part of your question, I think, is relevant too, Chris, in that there wasn't many people in those days looking to do those kinds of routes, so if something got done, that same group of people, which was a small nucleus, went on to something else. Mm -hmm. They weren't looking to repeat a route. They were sure. looking to do a new route, right? 
and there were still so many new routes to do that, you know, it it came later in mm -hmm. the progression, you know, like, you know, doing the, you know, Danini and I tried to do the second ascent of the Infinite Spur, mm -hmm. but, you know, like 10 years after George and Michael did it, but it wasn't for quite a few years until after that that it got repeated, and, and you know, and then the progression starts happening where, you know, Rolo and Steve do it in 24 hours. You know? sure. So you you see that same thing with a lot of the routes I've done. Mm -hmm. um, but the route we did, Danini and I did on Hunter, has only had one ascent. Okay. Most Which of the, that? The Diamond Arette. Okay. On the Hunter. Uh, and that was Freddie Wilkinson and Sam Johnson. And then the only route, well, up until recently, the the one route I've done that's been around for a while, the elevator shaft on Mount Johnson, which I did with Doug Chabot, that still hasn't been reputed. And we did that 21 years ago. And then the routes Jay and I did in 2009 haven't been reputed. So just to give a, a somebody who had, doesn't have a lot of experience on this type of climbing, something like that, the Isis buttress, it's a, it's a feature and... You know, you, you climb a weakness on that feature. and But if someone did it 20 years later, you know, other than knowing that you guys had done it, it would be, I mean, there's nothing there for them to climb. They're climbing. I mean, there's not anchors and, and all sorts of things, or are there? No, no, there's, I mean, would it, would there's it, no fixed bolt station. Yeah, so. would it feel like, I mean, would it, for all intents and purposes, sure. climbing-wise, just feel like a, oh, yeah. a, a first ascent? Yeah, it would. Yeah. And they may and that, not even follow the exact way you right. guys went. And more than likely they wouldn't because right. it's such a huge feature. It's not like, you know, it's not like following a crack system. Sure. Right. Yeah, I'm just kind of trying to put that yeah. in perspective because so used to yeah. repeating a rock route, you know, part of it is that there's some evidence that, that it got done. But so. Well, you know, occasionally, you know, depending on the style and, you know, if somebody left a rope or, or you know, wrapped it or something like or, that. Or, you know, left some gear or you know, equipment, mm -hmm. you know that they left but you know that was not what we were doing because it was all just you know we just put our shit on our backs and, and started going sure. uphill and, and so we weren't leaving anything but <clears throat> but you know these these features these big alpine faces you know they're they're condition dependent they change from year to year because that's the nature of snow and ice and uh, so often going the same way isn't the same and it's not like you know, it's not like you can whip out your mountain project topo on your sure. iPhone and look at, you know, where the route goes, you know, so there's that. But Same. there is information, you know, mm -hmm. for anyone subsequent to the first ascent, right. there's information. And, and that, that's helpful. That and changes yeah. everything, yeah. Well, knowing it can be done. It's exactly. psychological. Right. But then, like I never wrote a, I published a photo of ISIS in the journal with a line on it and where our bivouacs were, but I never wrote anything about it. So it just had a caption that said, this is Isis Buttress? Yeah, it was a full-page photo uh -huh. with a line with our bivvies, and that was it. Right. Just pissed it. You know, it pissed Ad Carter off, pissed Brad off. But I just was too lazy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> I got better at that. But I, I think it's important to, to mention, though, because... People are so much better. They're better athletes, better climbers, and their perspectives and their vision of what's possible, you know, has evolved and changed as it always does in climbing. Doesn't matter what kind of climbing. Um, so when someone just walks up to it, that's a younger climber, they're not looking at it in the same eyes sure. that we were, you know, and so they can just go, well, fuck, that's you know, it's not that big a deal. And plus, you know, it's been done so. How hard can it be? Right. Right? So uh, that's why people do things faster and lighter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sure, gears improve, clothing's improve, but people's perspectives and their athleticism have also significantly improved. And I think that's what makes the difference. Yeah, but the interesting thing is, is that, uh, like I said, even in my sort of limited outside knowledge of, of, this, of the whole discipline, of what you were doing um, and what people continue to do in places like Alaska, like that era 
in a place like Alaska is still, I mean, it's seen as like some sort of high point in, in ability and in boldness in vision. I mean, people still think back to those ascents and, and even over in the Himalayas and like, um, you know, uh, uh, Michael Kennedy and everybody up on Late Talk and all those things. Mm-hmm. It's, it almost feels in a way like no one's bettered those days yet. Even, even if they're climbing things faster and, and, and maybe sli- slightly technically harder. But, I mean, can you, maybe I'm wrong about that, but um, in, in, or maybe the, the, the media has mythologized it or something, or, or was there like truly something like pretty special about those, those times or those, well, that era? You know, I think there, there might be some validity to what you're saying, but, you know, for example, were any of us capable of doing things that, you know, like the Fitzroy Traverse that Tommy and Alex did last year? Right. Fucking way. You know? right. So, um, but that's a little different than, you know, the Northridge of Latok, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is an interesting question, I think, now that I think about it. I mean, I've thought about the Latok thing a lot because I know all those guys and, you know, the legacy of what's happened there still. I don't really see it being the same for some of the routes I did in Alaska or things like, you know, Muggs did. But, you know, I think there might have been something going on that, you know, was was different um, in our... I think it was just that we were there first. Right. I really do. Mm-hmm. It was nothing other than that. We just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And, you know, I remember the first time Danini and I went to the Ruth. Have you ever been in the... Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's it's a it's sort of a rock climbing zone in the later part of the season and it's an ice you know alpine zone in the earlier part of the season and it's just you know there's lots of people in there now and there's lots of commercial activity and there's lots of plane flights and there's lots of scenic stuff and it's just like you know it is not a wilderness the first time we went there we never saw anybody for three weeks that was only in the 80s right you know so that's my point about Mm -hmm. being just the timing of things, you sure. know, you know, I mean, the elevator shaft had been attempted by two other parties and people I know, but you know, they'd had these huge epics. And sure. Well, we'll talk about that route if you would, because I, I even have heard of that one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, right. I mean, and this has to be, you know, something that's, that's definitely part of, um, you know, when you talk about Jack tackle, this route comes up for sure. Well, Doug Chabot and I did it, but the first time I went there, to attempt it, I went with a fellow named Kim Miller, who worked for Black Diamond, and is a friend of mine. We were actually business partners at one point, and he runs Scarpa North America now. And we went up there, and we actually got up a ways, and then it started to snow. And this slot, you know, the shaft is this wild feature. I mean, it's a pretty unique feature in that it's 2,500-foot cleft, you know, weakness in the north face and in the initial part of it it's as much as a rope length deep into the wall you know, okay. 150 feet you know in and in a few places you can actually touch either wall with your hands you know so it's a pretty tight focused it's not a very hard route to pick out where you need to climb right the line's pretty, pretty obvious but Correspondingly, if it starts to snow, it's not a really good place to be. So Kim and I got up to what became the first crux, started to snow, and we were trapped underneath this boulder about the size of the yurt that's wedged in the shaft for an entire day while it spindrift avalanched to the point because we couldn't couldn't move. We were trapped. Um, Stopped snowing. We ran away. Second time I went there was Bill Belcourt, who works with you know, everybody at BD still. And we went up to it, looked up at it, had a 30-foot cornice hanging on the top of it. We went, not happening. So we didn't even rope up. Third time I did it with Doug. So, you know, it went fine. But it's, it's a wild feature in that 
you're mostly climbing on what I called China White, which is slang for heroin. And uh, it's just compressed spindrift over monolithic rock. So your tools, you know, actually work pretty well. Mm -hmm. But it's really hard to protect. So I think some of that's had something to do with that because I think we climbed nine full rope lengths before we ever put an ice screw in. And the rocks, infamous for being monolithic or or at the other end of the spectrum being like the consistency of cracker jacks. So it's, you know, these are not formations that have stellar, you know, crack systems and they're not great granite. So that may have had something to do. But, you know, we we did it and when we we get to the top and we, you know, done this route, we were actually also subsequently had done the second ascent of the mountain and went off the backside and went home and the weather was never bad so it's a lot of it's just sure luck with the weather and conditions it's uh -huh. not it's not about how strong you are or how many pull-ups you can do and all that shit it's just more about timing you know with things coming together coalescing in a positive manner <laughs> so, so it took me three times to get up there it took me three times to get up ices you know it's just like there's been that and then the Diamond Rat and Hunter, Jim and I got out of the plane and just did it. So then, right. you know, we had those things. And same with Jay and I. And, but, you know, it took Jack Roberts and I twice to do the route in the North Face of Kennedy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, right. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot, you know, it's an effort of both time and everything else to commit to these kinds of trips and climbs and, you know, the combination of so many different factors that go into it it's it's more so it's why it's so much more fun and easy just to go sport climbing or go rock climbing or sure just go day climbing well you you kind of saying how there's like all this luck involved and then you know and how many times it took you to do these certain climbs and whatnot but that, that's humility and that's that's um i think a hallmark of again a lot of you guys in that generation but you know what is it about you do you think that you know has made you as successful as you are even with the the repeated failures and also has made you again as i look through the literature this guy where the the generation just starting now is like this is the guy this is the guy talking about jack tackle as this as this sort of inspiration to them what do you think it is that made you successful continues to make you successful well i guess i'm persistent um my mother always thought I was very stubborn, but uh, I just, I like the process, the creative process of the first ascent thing, like I said earlier. And so, you know, there's been very few, but there's been a couple routes where I actually tried them and I went, you know, this just ain't worth it for whatever reason. But most of what I tried the first time that I wasn't successful on, I felt like it had value, mm -hmm. you know. It was an interesting line, or it was challenging, or it was aesthetic, or all of the above. So to me, it made sense to uh, go back. And I think part of that motivation, which is your real question, was, you know, completing something that I'd started. And also... You know, I mentioned about the creative process of it. And, you know, if somebody else did it, then it wasn't mine anymore, so mm -hmm. to speak. Not that you own any of this, but you know what I mean. And so I guess there was a competitive component to it, for sure, that I wanted to finish what I'd started and before somebody else got it. Right. So any, any climber who says that, you know, competition amongst climbers isn't, is a non-factor is totally full of shit. Right. Right. We all know that. But people still say that. It's amazing to me. Well, that's not really good. It's like, get life. So I think it was a combination of those things. Mm -hmm. It was mainly trying to finish something that I thought had intrinsic value, you know, that was interesting, was beautiful, was 
you know, challenging. Right. And do you consider yourself technically a good climber? I'm okay. I'm not great. I've never been a very good rock climber. This is a pretty decent ice climber. Uh-huh. Um, what I did when, you know, you were asking me earlier about when I started climbing in Bozeman, I tried to, you know, initially, like most things, you start rock climbing, and then, then I did understand early on the ice climbing thing because of what was available there. And then it became, well, you, you sort of take all those disciplines and you apply them to the bigger mountains. That's what you did, right? That's what alpine climbing was. That's what alpinism was, right? It was a combination of all those different disciplines, including even maybe wall climbing. So I was never really good at any of them, but I was okay at the combination of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I guess that's my best answer. <laughs> so I mentioned a lot of this stuff going on outside of the purview of, of of sort of media or notice. You you talked about keeping the you know the reports to the minimum and stuff under wraps. As so, far as Montana went, yeah. yeah. So is there like a, a a climber or or an ascent? Maybe it went really well. Maybe it went really horribly. Um, that stands out that maybe you haven't spent a lot of time talking about or, or telling others about? Well, I think they all sort of fall into the same category. I mean, most of the new routes that were of any consequence, somebody knows about them. Right. Um, well, and, and maybe more the question is, is like, is there sort of a, a personal best or not even best in terms of it was the hardest thing or the right but the thing that you were like oh this was something really important to me that you know is not one of the ones we've talked about thus far well it's a combination of a couple of routes i think to answer your question okay for sure the isis climb sort of made me understand that i could do this which Mm -hmm. was you know part of what fed the the fire for the progression beyond that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the route on Hunter, I think, is actually one of the best things we did because of the style and the fact that we actually just did, in fact, get out of the plane and do it, you mm-hmm. know. And it actually had, you know, significant epic getting off the thing and traversed the mountain in the process and dropped a rope and blah, blah, blah. So that was pretty good. The shaft was, you know, important, but I wouldn't say it's as important as Isis or Hunter to me. And then part of the answer is also the the route Jack and I did in the north face of Kennedy, which we both like to say was the best climb we never did because we didn't go to the summit. Okay. But we did the unclimbed aspect of the face and then... Because I had dropped a cramp on it, but we actually kept on going. Um, combined with a two-day storm that completely, you know, put the mountain in bad avalanche conditions, um, prevented us from going to the top. If it hadn't been for the storm, I think we would have gone to the top, even though I hit one cramp on it. But we didn't. So that was a pretty good accomplishment in our minds. But, you know... We didn't sign it. Right. Um, and then recently, I guess the last part of my answer would be these routes I did with Jay just a few years ago. Because, you know, our combined ages were 112. <laughs> and we did five routes in 17 days. And four of them were new. One was 33 pitches on Huntington. And then the best thing we did was this route on... Mount Thunder, which is a 4,000-foot face. We did it 67 hours, tent to tent. So, not just one thing, but maybe a combination of those things. Right on. Yeah. Well, that kind of is a good segue to sort of my last question or line of questioning here, is that, you know, you've lived this life of climbing, and, and you've, you've sort of dropped in that you also worked within the outdoor industry, um, as, as one of the original parts of, of Black Diamond and then other endeavors across the way. So you've had this, I mean, life of climbing every 
every aspect of it seems to be connected to that. So that's a really big question, but I mean, you've lost friends. I mean, you guys, you've, you've mentioned just in the beginning of the show, um, a couple, you know, in that, in that classic way that Mountaineers, you guys have to just state it and move on, you know, in, in the conversation. Every, everybody knows in alpinism and in life, as long as yours, that's going to happen. So what are the sacrifices? What kind of things have you gotten from it? I mean, you know, you're still doing it. It's still driving you. You have this place in the desert where you come and climb. And, and uh, is there any, like, last reflection in terms of, of what it's given you, maybe what it's taken from you, um, along the lines of, you know, just reflecting on a life in the mountains? Well, I guess my first part of the answer would be it's given a lot more to me than it's taken from me, for sure. And I don't, you know, I think we all, you know, the longer you live, the more friends you lose. And a lot of them are, you know, have nothing to do with climbing. So that's just part of life. Um, but, I, you know, I have lost some significant climbing partners to climbing. Um, but that, that's not unique in my mm-hmm. you know, case at all. Um, I was able to, I was very lucky and still am to have been able to combine, you know, an avocation and a vocation together. He likes you. It's like the world's on his feet. Go on. <laughs> and, uh, because I said earlier that, you know, sponsorship and sponsored climbers didn't really exist when I started climbing. So early on, I decided that I'd figure out a way to make money. And it happened to be because of the outdoor biz. And then I could go climbing where I wanted to, when I wanted to, and with whom I wanted to, versus having some marketing department tell us, you know, what the objective was and who I was going to climb with. So I was lucky in the respect to be able to make a living at it. You know, I guided for a long time, but just, you know, part-time, not a full-time guide. So the combination of guiding and the outdoor industry and then being able to do, you know, 45 expeditions or whatever it's been, I don't even know, um, has given me a lot more than any of the, you know, the tragedies or the things that it took away. You know, it's my wife, Pat. You know, I know because of climbing and because of the outdoor industry. Um, I'm... I'm a lucky guy, and I've, you know, I've had a few challenges along the way, just like everyone else, with health problems and accidents and so forth, but, you know, I just don't know how else I would have done it. You know, I have have nothing to complain about, and um, climbing is great because it's a lifetime sport, it's not something you can do it the same level you were when you were 30 maybe but it's better than trying to be an olympic you know gymnast or swimmer and have it be over by the time you're 20 you know right so i've always liked that part right on well thanks a lot for having me up to your place jack is there anything we missed i mean no well 30 I mean, years or so but yeah right 45 years yeah. or whatever no it's great and i appreciate you coming up here chris and i appreciate the opportunity to talk to you Right on, thanks. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. All right, folks, thanks for listening. And thanks to Jack Tackle for having me up to his place. Got to hang out with him, his lovely wife, Pat, some of his friends, and uh, he was very gracious with his time, so I appreciate that. And I want to mention one more thing, that we are partnered with Benighted Publications out of Durango, Colorado, the guys who put together the climbing zine over at climbingzine.com as well as several books by Luke Mihal. So please go check them out. Love those guys. Always enjoy hanging out with them. Looking forward to uh, working on the brackets at the Cycle Block Comp this summer if it happens with those guys. So um, yeah, climbingzine.com. If you like what I do, you'll like what they do. All right, folks, get out there, have some fun, and don't forget to check your knot.
want a beer? You gonna call room service? We got beer. You haul beer up this rock, you're insane. I may be insane, but I'm not stupid. I didn't carry it. You did. It's in your pack. 